Welcome to the Compliance 911 Show, a no-nonsense podcast discussing hot topics for today's busy compliance professional. It's everything you wanted to know about regulatory compliance, but we're afraid to ask. And now, here are your hosts, Dean Stockford of M&M Consulting and Len Suzio of Geodata Vision. So what exciting topic do you have to our, for our listeners today, Len? Well, Dean, the two questions that should be on every compliance and risk officer's mind are, one, is my lending performance below what examiners would find acceptable? And two, is my performance so low as to be considered to be, quote, statistically significant? All fair lending and CRA exams boil down to those two questions. I think this issue is especially timely in light of the pending changes in the CRA rule and the aggressive pursuit of the anti-redlining initiative announced by the DOJ in October of 2021. In April of this year, 2023, the Assistant Attorney General, in a speech at Seton Hall University, proclaimed that the Prudential Banking Regulators referred a record number of banks to the Department of Justice for redlining charges. Every regulatory compliance officer needs to know what the answers are to the two questions that I just stated. Yeah, what an incredibly timely topic. I was just actually at a client yesterday and we were actually discussing this very issue because they just went through an exam. Um, And one of the things that they were asking, the board had a lot of questions relative to uh, the lending inside and obviously outside of the assessment area and certain REMA impacts. But um, I don't want to get off topic. Uh, Where do we want to start today, Len? Well, let's begin with the Community Reinvestment Act. Now, everyone knows the bank regulators proposed a new CRA rule more than a year ago. Generally speaking, the proposed rule was more than complex. It can be best characterized as convoluted and impractical, in my opinion. And I think that's one reason why there's been a long delay in issuing the final rule. Now, within the proposed rulemaking was provisions for official benchmarks for different CRA tests. While much of the proposed rule can be criticized as overreach, the proposed performance benchmarks are very interesting, and they represent, for the very first time, the publication of exactly calculated performance standards for CRA examination purposes. Now, without getting into too much detail, the regulars propose, quote, calibrated benchmarks, computed based on a percentage of the demographic variables and a second set of percentages based on the loan market data within a bank's assessment area. The factor that would be the cutoff for, quote, satisfactory performance proposed by the regulators to be applied to the demographic variables was 65%, specifically 65% of the relative distribution of owner-occupied housing in the assessment area, low and moderate income tracts, and 65% of the distribution of families by income class within the assessment area. Identical 65% factors also apply to the demographic variables for small business lending. Now, if the distribution of owner-occupied housing is 20% within the assessment area, low mod tracts, then the calibrated standard for the low, for low satisfactory performance would be 13%. For the first time, a bank compliance officer will know what they absolutely have to do to avoid a need to improve rating on a given test. Similarly, calibrated standards would apply to the lending activity of all lenders competing within the defined community. 
In that case, the calibration factor as proposed would be 80% for a low satisfactory rating. So if 30% of all reported small business lending in an assessment area were in the low mod tracks, the calibrated performance standard for a low satisfactory rating would be 24%. Uh, that's 80% of the 30% average penetration rate by all the lenders reporting in the assessment area. The regulars propose these benchmarks to be applied only to the count of loans and not their dollar value. They also propose that if a bank passed either the demographic standard, calibrated standard, I should say, or the loan market calibrated standard, the higher rating would apply. Finally, they propose calibrated standards for outstanding, high satisfactory, needs to improve, and substantial noncompliance performance ratings, as well as the low satisfactory performance conclusion. You can see from the foregoing that the computations really are pretty straightforward and relatively simple. Just identify the demographic and loan market standards and then apply the calibration factors, compute your bank's penetration rates under the geographic and borrower characteristics test, and you will know exactly where you stand in terms of a CRA performance rating. So now a, a uh, compliance officer going to an exam, it's not going to be a guess as to whether you've done enough to pass you'll know in advance. And that's the blessing and the curse at the same time. You will know yeah, exactly yeah. what the standard is, but there won't be much forgiveness from it for if you if you fail it. But yeah, fair warned yeah. is fair warned. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It sounds pretty straightforward. And computations are not too complicated to determine performance rating under the demographic and credit uh, market standards. Now, for the first time, banks can calculate what their performance ratings should be before examiners actually arrive. So that's, you know, I, I see that as a good thing. Uh, so notwithstanding the, the computations required for other performance ratings, being able to determine if a bank's performance will at least get a satisfactory rating uh, should be more appealing to those bankers. So now uh, maybe we can... Uh, into what we call the fair lending and the redlining piece. I, I have a feeling uh, things are not quite as simple regarding the acceptable performance uh, standards as you indicated. Well, you got that right, Dean. The approach to redlining and the determination of what's acceptable is based on a concept called, quote, statistical significance, end quote, and the calculation of whether a result of your bank is so low that it is, quote, statistically significant. Now, the concept of statistical significance is based on statistics, of course, and the probability that your bank's performance is normal or is so extremely low that it could not have happened by random chance. When a population of data is sampled over and over again, the results when graphed tend to form a natural curve with the mean or average of the population at the center. So effectively, regulators are saying that your results are assumed to be within the range of distribution within the market. In other words, that's the basic assumption that they go in saying, okay, your performance range uh, is no different than the market. Unless, for example, your lending results in lending in minority tracks are so low that there's only a very small likelihood that they reflect random chance. The, in other words, the likelihood of your results happening by random chance are almost non-existent. Your performance under those circumstances is really different from the market, well below it. In such circumstances, the regulators will no longer give you the benefit of the doubt because the probability of them incorrectly accusing you of redlining when you're not redlining, basically, 
uh, is very low. And according to statistical theory, put another way, if your performance results are so extreme that they happen only when a very small percentage of the time occurs by chance, when you are not redlining, this is what's called the null, null hypothesis, then it is highly probable that you indeed are redlining and accusing you of redlining has only a minimal chance of being wronged by the regulators. Now, the natural question everyone's got on their mind, of course, is, well, what is the cutoff point between a result that's so extreme it would be deemed to be statistically significant and an outcome that's not statistically significant? Well, the regulators use a statistical significance level of 5%. If your performance, in other words, your penetration rate in the majority-minority tracks, which is incidentally called the p-value, is below the statistical significance mark, then your low results will be deemed statistically significant and can be the basis for a referral to the Department of Justice. Now, I want to add a note here that when I speak about your results being so extreme uh, that uh, it's highly likely that you are doing something uh, involving redlining, I don't want our listeners to get the comfort of thinking, well, that means I can be way off whatever the, the, the market average penetration rate is lending in the minority tracks, and I'm still safe. That's not true. Uh, so if the market's at, let's say, a 20% penetration rate in the minority tracks, this does not mean that you can be comfortable thinking, oh, well, I'm at 15%, uh, and that's not so extreme uh, from the 20%, so therefore I'm safe. No, no, the uh, statistical significance can be within two or three percentage points of the market average. So you can actually be up there in the 17 or 18% range within a market that's a 20% penetration lending, lending in the minority tracks, and you still could be statistically significant in your performance in a bad way. In other words, your performance is unacceptably low. Now, this is highly technical stuff and includes double negatives, so it can be very confusing because you're, you know, we're talking about the, what's called the null hypothesis. But what a banker needs to know is what are my results? Is my volume of lending in the majority minority track so extreme that it's statistically significant? And if so, how many more mortgages should I have extended to have performance results that are not so low as to be significant, statistically significant, that is? A banker doesn't necessarily care about the p-value. What they want to know is what should our performance goals lending in the minority tracks be? How many mortgages do we have to extend at a minimum to avoid a statistically significant result? So if a bank is doomed, if the results are deemed statistically, uh, excuse me, so is a bank doomed, I should say, if the results are deemed statistically significant? Not necessarily, Dean. There are certain assumptions in redlining analysis that can be inaccurate and undermine the validity of the test. And a banker should be aware of these things, of course. First, there's the matter of correctly defining the markets to be analyzed. This has become a serious problem with the use of REMAs, reasonably expected market areas, uh, by the regulators. Regulators have said and announced that they use MSAs, entire MSAs or metropolitan divisions for REMAs. And unfortunately, many community banks cannot possibly serve an entire MSA. And an unreasonable REMA result can result in unreliable conclusions. We have seen this happen in our and several of our clients recently in the last year, basically. So number one, 
the market itself has to be the real market. Uh, in confusing the situation is the regulars' approach, where they're they're using MSAs as that standard. So right away, if your regulator is pushing your redlining accusations based on an MSA, make certain that the MSA itself is truly a reasonable area for you to serve. If not, uh, you have no chance of getting a, a satisfactory or getting out of an exam without being potentially accused of redlining. Second, the regulators will compare banks to the market and to their peers. So how peers are defined can affect the comparison. Make sure the peer lenders are indeed truly peer lenders not just an arbitrary group of lenders of the same size. Frequently, an examiner will ask a banker, well, who are your peer lenders in this market? You should be prepared for that question and and you should be able to justify your position. Have a list of those peer lenders, why you consider them to be peer lenders, and make certain you've analyzed your performance in advance as how you compare it to those peer lenders for lending in the minority tracks. And third, you may actually have a statistically significant performance, but there can be legitimate explanations for it. Perhaps your ability to lend has been impaired by other factors that may limit your lending for a period of time. So you're not necessarily doomed if you have a statistically significant result, if there's a legitimate explanation for why it occurred. So don't give up hope uh, if you're if in your own self-analysis, you've determined that your results are statistically significant or you're low lending in the minority tracks, determine if there's an explanation that is a legitimate explanation that is non-discriminatory in nature. Glenn, this has uh, been a very timely topic in light of all the anti-redlining initiatives that we've seen, uh, the record referrals for redlining. Uh, by the GO, uh, DOJ in 2022. And I'll tell you, it's the topic of every discussion. Uh, as I indicated, I was just in a board meeting yesterday and this came up as well. So I think it will help our listeners to understand this complex and very important issue. And I thank you for uh, uh, for bringing this uh, to our audience today. So this is Dean Stockford from M&M Consulting. And this is Len Susio with GeoData Vision saying, we hope you enjoyed today's broadcast and found it informative. Please send us your suggestions for future podcast projects. Thanks for listening to the Compliance 911 Show. If you like the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. While you're at it, please give us a like and review to help others find the show. As always, links are in the show notes, and you can always find us online at compliance911show.com. Follow M&M Consulting and GeoData Vision on LinkedIn for all the latest news and information on compliance hot topics.